If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one free over there, download one from the App Store. Uh, But we're going to dive right in today, so you can open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 11. And just a quick reminder of what has come before this. We've just come out of four weeks of being in Matthew chapter 10, which is commonly called the missionary discourse. And so what's happened is Jesus has been looking around and he's saying, man, there's so many people who are thirsty to hear this incredible message that there is a God who loves them and that is in pursuit of them and that is actually bringing his kingdom to bear on a corrupt and wicked world uh, for transformative purposes. And and, and he's saying, people need to hear this message. So I'm going to gather this group of people And then I'm going to empower them with my authority and send them out. And chapter 10 uh, goes through a series of teachings in which Jesus actually talks to his followers uh, about this. And so we're going to be transitioning now from that passage into what people are actually thinking about Jesus as they experience him. And and so uh, we're moving into sort of some passage that reflects on their reactions. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 11, we're going to start right in verse 1. So it says this, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Okay, that seems like a a pretty transistory passage. He's like, okay, I'm moving from one thought to another thought, you know, narrative structure. But there is something really important and interesting I want us to notice here. And uh, just to be kind of frame this conversation, one of the things that you may notice if you've been part of the, the church world for a little while, and, and you might not notice, but you would find a little bit interesting, is that different Bibles have different uh, translations. And when someone makes a, a translation decision, they have to kind of work around a couple of different things. So uh, the first thing is they have to decide what's going to be the most important, communicating a thought in a way that the person that they're translating the text for will understand or communicating the exact wording. And sometimes you got to make a decision that falls, okay, like we don't have the same expression in English that an ancient Hebrew person would have or an ancient Greek person would have. So we got to figure out how do we communicate what the person who is writing is trying to communicate to those people. And sometimes it's just, uh, it's just like, hey, we, we want the exact wording for this. And so uh, I want to look at this verse again from a different translation. The, the NIV, which we primarily use, great translation, nothing wrong with it. Uh, but it, it tends to go more on communicating a basic thought versus the word-for-word reality. So if we look at this again in the ESV, it says this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now that's a small difference, but but what I want us to capture in this is Jesus has just come out talking about mission. And now what does it say he's doing? He's going to their cities. That's significant for us to, to see because we sometimes in the, in the church world have this idea that, you know, we should be a, a come and see people. And yet, if we are calling ourselves followers of Jesus and we're looking at his life and saying our lives should look similar and we see how he pursues people, that, that should frame the way that we believe our lives should be lived out. And so, what does Jesus do? He's going to their cities. And this is a a small reflection of the type of God he is because he didn't just stay up in heaven where he was completely self-sufficient. I mean, he's got complete, uh, perfect community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in unity together, and yet he comes down into the mess of our brokenness, becoming a human, stepping into our reality. What was he doing there? He was pursuing us. 
And what does he do as a human being? He pursues people. He doesn't wait just for them to come to him. He actually goes to where they are. Now, it's, it's interesting that over the past several hundred years, the church in general has had this almost opposite mentality. Like, we think that if we create this incredible space and we build big, shiny buildings and have awesome worship teams with great, good-looking worship leaders like Nathan and, uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, hot bands and, and uh, great preaching and all that kind of stuff, that people are going to come. But when was the last time you sat down with someone who has no experience of church on a Sunday morning and said, hey, what are you thinking of doing this morning? Well, it's beautiful outside. I'm going to the beach or I'm going to have brunch with my family. Sitting in a dark theater in comfy AVX chairs is not usually number one on someone's list. And yet so often we as a church, uh, in kind of a general sense, not just West Village, but many churches, kind of function in the way that we should be a come see. So come see our event, come see our thing. And yet that's actually opposite of what Jesus did. But we don't just do that on a corporate level. We also tend to do that on a personal level. I mean, how many of us kind of go and, you know, have these really wonderful interactions with our neighbors, you know, that 10 out of the 10 times, uh, you know, in a decade that you get a little bit of snow and the five times that you actually need to shovel it, you're like, man, I was from the prairies. I got to shovel. I'm, I'm going to go shovel my neighbor's lawns or their driveways. <laughs> man, I'm, I'm like... My head's all over the place this morning. Um, and, and, and you think, man, they, they're going to see something different about me. They're going to start asking questions because I'm this great person who's really nice to them. And, and, and that's going to lead them to ask questions. And so we, we kind of function in the assumption of like, hey, they're going to see the way that we live and they're going to ask questions. And don't get me wrong. We talk a lot about living a life that demands a gospel explanation, but we cannot miss this. It still needs to have a gospel explanation. So what is Jesus doing in this very moment? It says he's going around pursuing people where they're at and teaching and preaching. There's two things that it says Jesus is doing, teaching and preaching. And and I think it's important for us to see how they are working in connection with each other. So teaching is primarily about correct information and preaching is primarily about correct application. And we need to have both. And we can have this tendency to focus on one or the other. So if you focus on teaching, what you're going to have is great information that people don't know what to do with. And trust me, it's good stuff. I love it. I went to, to Briarcrest College, did biblical studies, learned how to read the Bible in Greek, uh, Koine Greek, which is a dead language. Uh, I mean, people don't even know how to speak it anymore, so they just kind of make up sounds. And uh, biblical Hebrew, again, another dead language, like modern Hebrew is different. Uh, because I, I nerd out on this information stuff, correct information, and took classes on theology, and took classes on uh, Old Testament, uh, ancient Near Eastern history, and Second Temple Judaism, which is the era when Jesus kind of came into reality. So I'd understand all this wonderful background information so I could understand this book better. And don't get me wrong, that's all really good stuff. But the problem is, is if our pursuit of information doesn't lead to transformation, then what good is it? And this is why you'll often hear us say something along the lines of, we love studying the Bible, but we don't do Bible studies. And, and I want to correct maybe a misinformation around this, because what we're not saying is that it's, it's wrong to study the Bible. What we are saying 
is that a Bible study should not be primarily about gathering useful information so that we can feel really good about the knowledge we have of this book, but that it primarily should be something that leads to transformation. And though this is where preaching comes in, because preaching is taking that information and applying it to our lives and seeing how the Spirit actually is using that to change us. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's going around, he's teaching people. These are the correct ways to understand God, but he's also preaching to them, saying, this is how that actually changes and transforms your life and people, friends. This is what you and I are called to do. We're not just called to go around and be good neighbors, good friends, good coworkers. We're called to be pursuing people and teaching and preaching. And preaching doesn't mean you have to be able to come up here and talk to a couple hundred people in a dark theater. It means that you have to learn how to apply what Jesus is saying in his word to your life and allow it to transform you. You gotta know his story, who he is and what he has done so that as you listen to other people's stories, you can actually start to help them see who they are in light of that and then how they ought to live. So now as Jesus is going around pursuing people, Matthew wants to switch gears and talk about how people are reacting to this. So let's continue on in verse 2. It says this, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now before we we jump in here, we got to remember that Matthew, the guy who has written this book, he is not just writing this arbitrarily. He's not just writing something like that kind of came, you know, as he was observing it. He has a particular purpose. And right from the beginning, he tells us what that purpose is. He's making a claim about who Jesus is. And so in this middle section, he's going to look at how people are responding to Jesus, but he wants us to filter it through the lens of who he is claiming that Jesus is. And so he says right here, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... So Matthew doesn't say when John heard about the deeds of the person that people were calling the Messiah or the person that he thought was the Messiah. Matthew is making a truth claim here. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And so as we filter through people's responses, we actually have to look at it through the lens of saying Jesus is the Messiah. So if they have questions, we got to reframe that through understanding who Jesus is. And this is exactly what's going to happen. Now, if you're new with us today and you haven't been journeying with us for the last year and a half that we've been going through the previous 10 chapters of Matthew, you might miss who this character John is, but he's actually been introduced to us before in in chapter three. So right before Jesus really gets pumping on his ministry, uh, this guy kind of appears out of nowhere. And we learn from from Luke's gospel that John is actually Jesus's cousin and he has a particular task, which is to prepare the way for Jesus. And he is like, man, he's a firecracker. So he's out there and he's, he's in the wilderness. He's got like a camel skin sweater on. He's eating grasshoppers like a boss. And, and he's going around and he's like telling people, man, you guys got to repent because God's kingdom is coming. And he says things like, man, God's going to like look at the trees and see if, they pr- if they're producing good fruit. And if they're not producing good fruit, he's going to cut them down and throw them into the fire. What he's saying is, man, guys, you got to take a look at your lives and see if they're aligned with Jesus. And if they're not, beware. Like God's judgment is coming. It's a hard and heavy word. 
And we learn in chapter 14 that that word wasn't just reserved for the religious leaders or the ragtag people who were coming and visiting him out in the wilderness, but that John was actually starting to speak to power. And so there's this guy named Herod Antipas, and he's kind of the puppet king of that region. And, and he's a Jewish king, so he's supposed to live in a particular way. The Old Testament has particular instructions for how a king is supposed to live, and they're supposed to exemplify the holiness and the rightness of God. And yet Herod Antipas says, I don't care about any of that stuff. And his brother Philip has this beautiful wife, and Herod's like, man, I, I want that girl. And so he steals her. And John's like, dude, you can't do that. That's, that's not God's way at all. And Herod's like, well, I don't have to listen to you, John. I'm king. And he throws him in prison. So here's John. He's got this message of judgment. And he's languishing in prison. And Jesus is walking around. What's he doing? He's like preaching good news, healing people, raising people from the dead. And John's like, where is the judgment? Where is the judgment? And, and dude, I'm, I'm God's righteous prophet and I am languishing in prison. So he's got some questions. And so he sends some of his followers because he can't go. And he's just like, hey, Jesus are you sure you're the guy? Because I was given the message about what's about to happen, and it don't look like what I was talking about. John had expectations that weren't being met. And I think if we're really being honest with ourselves, how many of us have these moments? We have a particular idea of what God is supposed to do or what he's supposed to look like. In the same way that John had this particular idea of what the Messiah was supposed to do and look like. You know, he's expecting God's righteous warrior who's going to come and wipe out the oppressive Roman Empire that had uh, been ruling over the people of Judea, that was going to clean up the corruption in the temple system, that was going to wipe the slate clean. And here's Jesus, and he's going around healing people, raising them from the dead, bringing people who are outcasts of society and bringing them in. And he's going around doing these crazy things like hanging out with the, the people that no one wants to hang out with. He's got like homeless people who are coming and having dinner with him and prostitutes who are like, uh, you know, kissing his feet and wiping them with their hair. And John's like, what's going on? This doesn't match the, the picture that I have in my head of how this is supposed to look. And I think if we're really being honest, that is often the case in our lives. I was chatting with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and he was sharing the story with me about a friend who had just recently passed. And he said the wife in particular was having a really difficult time because she was convinced that her husband with cancer was going to be healed. And she was so convinced, and she prayed and prayed and prayed. Then her husband passed away. Or some of you in this room, and you feel this call, this deep burden to be biological parents. You've tried and tried, and yet it's not coming together. Maybe some of you deeply desire to have a good lifelong partnership, a great marriage. And yet, you get into that point where you're like, ah, I don't know if this is going to happen for me. 
God, like, I mean, I'm following you. I'm faithful. The least you could do is help me find someone to live life with. And there's so many lists of ways that we have expectations that aren't met. And what happens when they aren't met is it causes doubt. And this is exactly what's going on for John. He said, man, I, geez, I, have, I have a picture of how things are supposed to go. And they're not going that way. Are you sure you're the guy? What's beautiful about this is how Jesus responds. Because he doesn't go and say, man, John, you're supposed to be my prophet. And you're having doubts? Dude, you are, you are just fickle. Like, you're off your rocker. Like, I'm done with you. No, he actually upholds John. Listen to how he responds in verse 4. It says, Jesus replied to them, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, it's, it's interesting. We might miss this. But the way that Jesus is communicating what has just happened and what has been happening is that he uses language that would have been so familiar to someone uh, who knew the Jewish scriptures. And in particular, he's actually alluding to different passages in Isaiah and how he communicates this. And so what he's saying is, yeah, John, I get that there are things that, that you don't see here, but, but let's look back at the scriptures and what they say about me. the kind of person that I'm supposed to be. And so he quotes from passages like Isaiah 61.1, which talk about the good news being proclaimed to the poor, or Isaiah 35, uh, 5 and 6, which talk about people being healed, like the blind being able to have sight, the deaf hearing. And he's like, this is the kind of God, this is the kind of Messiah, John, that I am. And in the moments where you and I are dealing with these doubts, the call on our lives is not to just ignore them, but to actually go back and compare what our expectations are with what the scriptures actually say. And listen to how Jesus finishes this off. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Happy, lucky are those who don't stumble. And, and I don't want you to hear what he's not saying. Because what Jesus is not saying is, blessed are you when you never have any doubts. Blessed are you when you never have any unmet expectations. In fact, in, in verses 7, uh, 7 down through 10, uh, Jesus is going to confront people, and we're going to see this in a second, who are probably thinking in their heads, man, John, man, you're, you're a flake, dude. Jesus like, no, John's not a flake. It's not a a bad thing that he has these questions. He just has an incorrect perspective. The assumption that Jesus is making in this statement is that people have started well, and they hit that point where things don't make sense to them. And he's saying in that moment, you're going to have a couple of choices to make. And the first choice is to stumble, is to walk away, is to say, man, just my expectations of you aren't being met, and I'm done. All of us are going to hit these moments. Earlier this week, I was uh, just scrolling through Facebook, and uh, a friend of mine, she's newer Christian, just wrestling through Scripture. 
And she's like, there's some hard things in here that I don't get. And it doesn't really make sense to me. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, I I know, I know it's not going to always make sense to you. But in that moment, do you trust me? Now, there's something really interesting and beautiful about these passages that Jesus alludes to when he's talking to John. Because each of them actually does talk about God's righteous judgment. You see, in John's mind, the way that's going to play out is Jesus comes as this warrior king. He wipes out all this evilness. A bunch of people die. Israel's free. It's great. You know, we get to go on living life as it was in kind of our Old Testament uh, era. But Jesus' vision, Jesus' picture for what life should look like being transformed is much bigger than that. And we know that in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, Jesus is going to be arrested. And he's going to be tried, even though he's innocent. And he's going to go to a cross. And on that moment, it's going to be as if God takes all our junk, all our wickedness, all our badness, all the ways that we hurt each other, all the guilt that comes from that, and he puts it in a backpack and puts it on Jesus' shoulders. And that vengeance, that wrath that Isaiah predicts doesn't fall on you and me. It falls fully on Jesus. What a better picture than what John could imagine. John thinks, man, Jesus, you just got to go out and start slaying people. And Jesus is like, no, I'm actually going to be the one slain. Friends, this is how in the midst of our biggest struggles, in the midst of our biggest unmet expectations, that we can actually trust Jesus. Because we might not always get what he's doing, but let me ask you, what kind of person lays down their life for you? What kind of God abandons his self-sufficiency in heaven to come down and die for his creation. There's this really beautiful passage, one of, another one of Jesus' early followers named John writes, and I just want to share a, a one part of it with you. In 1 John, he's writing this, this uh, message, and he says this in 1 John chapter 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son, one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that you and I love God, because we didn't. But that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What's John saying? He's saying, man, we didn't particularly like God or pursue him or were good to him or worthy of him. And yet, He came into our reality and laid down his life for us. When you got questions, how do you know that you can trust Jesus? Because you can trust his character. You can trust his love because it was put on full display at the cross where he died for us. Jesus isn't intimidated by our doubts or our questions. 
But in the midst of those, he does call us to trust him. And we see that he's not scandalized by those questions because of how he responds to John and then how he teaches about after. So we see in verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he asked them this question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces, and those... Um, sorry, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So this crowd has been witnessing what's going on. John's like, he's an important figure. And he's coming and he's having doubts. And so what's going on in their heads? They're saying, man, John, I don't know about you, dude. Like, you're having a moment of weakness here. And Jesus doesn't pounce on that and say, man, John, like, he was my cousin. He should know me better. I mean, he's got so many benefits and, of knowing me and experiencing me. Like, and he gets a little thing like being thrown into prison and, oh, man, it's the end of the world. And he actually challenges that thought. He says, what, what was it that you guys went out into the desert to see? And he uses this analogy, like a, 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 a reed waving in the wind, like some kind of fickle person, some flavor of the week, some like find your best life now type of teacher. No, he's like, man, that stuff, that has nothing that is going to get you anywhere. Because as soon as hardship comes, boom, that's useless. And he uses another picture. He's like, what did you go out to see then? Someone who wears fancy clothing? The picture that I get in my head is like, a social media influencer, you know, someone who can tweet and like takes a lot of pictures of themselves wearing Gucci and I don't know, fancy clothing companies, but you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, all the name brands, totally branded, which reminds me, uh, <laughs> this is a total tangent, but uh, there's a hilarious Instagram channel called Preacher Sneakers. Uh, if you ever want to be super judgmental and pharisaical, go on there and you'll judge all these famous preachers because they spend thousands of dollars on shoes. <laughs> but this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in this moment, what did you go out to see? Like some fashion icon, some royal stately person, some influential person? No, those people, they don't go out to the wilderness. And they live in palaces. John, John was not this type of person. He ate grasshoppers and wore camel fur. He was a man's man. He lived in the desert. And he was a prophet. What does that mean? It means he brings the hard and heavy uh, throat-punching truth of God into your life in a way that is going to confront you and transform you. This is what Jesus' point is. There is nothing fickle about John. There is nothing flaky about John. It's okay that he has questions here. Don't doubt his character. But then Jesus is going to transition and say, not only was John a prophet, but he was something more than that. He was something more than a prophet. And of course, the question that we're going to ask is, well, what's, what's more than a prophet? And Jesus quotes from this, the, this Old Testament book called Malachi. It's the very last book of the Old Testament, and it predicts a day when God is going to show up in the midst of 
the world that Malachi is seeing around him. He says, before that happens, he's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. And Jesus says, this is that guy. Chris is going to unpack this more for us next week. But Jesus is about to shift this and say, you know, as much as John is this amazing guy who's more than a prophet, anyone who comes and experiences me is greater than him because it was never, ever, ever going to be primarily about John. His one and only role was to point to me. We don't often say this, probably not as much as we should, but the Old Testament, this beautiful first half of the Bible is God's epic story. But as you read through it, what you start to realize is this is God's story pointing forward to Jesus. And at the very tip of that spear comes John. But his job is to point forward to Jesus. Here's the really beautiful thing. As we look at our lives, we also get to be people who point others to Jesus. And so going back to what we talked about in verse 1, our call is to go, to teach, and to preach, to live lives that do what? Point people to Jesus. And what happens when we walk through times of unmet expectations, of pain, of sadness, and yet in those dark moments where doubts flourish, we can still say, but you know what? I trust Jesus because I know how much he loved me. See, in that moment of pouring our lives out in sorrow and sadness and doubt, we even then have an opportunity to not make it about me or make it about ourselves, but to actually point to Jesus. As we finish off here, I want to uh, invite the band to come up. We're going to close. But I want to say this. Jesus is not simply worthy only of our trust, but he's also worthy of our worship. And John actually is recorded elsewhere in the book of John saying this says, he must become greater, and I must become less. And so the encouragement for us today is in the midst of times when you feel doubt, in the midst of times where situations just don't click, they don't make sense, and you're wondering, man, is this really God's plan? Number one, just recognize that we have a limited vantage point. Like John, he, he could only see a small picture of what God's plan was. And God's plan was far better and more fruitful than he could have ever imagined. 
And so in these moments of our deep questions, allow that to be a time where we step away and become less, and God becomes greater in our lives. And here's the beautiful thing. The cross shows us, of course, that Jesus is so trustworthy, that he has great love for us, but Jesus didn't just stay on the cross. He was buried, and now the tomb is empty. And that not only shows us Jesus' great love, but also his just greatness. Because if death could not hold Jesus back, then what can? And so those moments in our lives where we experience doubt, we know that we have a greater hope in a God in whom we can trust. We're going to get to respond today in a couple of different ways. The first of all is we're going to get to respond through song. And you may not notice this. Uh, we're not super broadcasty about this, but we are very intentional about the songs that we choose. And you're not going to hear us sing songs about, you know, how much we love Jesus and how much we're going to do so many things for him and how much, uh, you know, it's, it's all about all, all the ways that we're going to worship. And we actually sing songs purely about who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's because our hope as a church family is that we become less and he becomes greater. And so we're going to have a chance to actually respond and to sing our hearts out, sing our guts out because of who Jesus is. We're also going to get to respond by giving, as Matt talked about earlier. Giving is a response of trust. And maybe today you're thinking, man, finances are tight. I've had this conversation several times, and yet we believe that God is actually our provider, and this is a way that we show it. And Jesus, we actually trust that you can take care of us, even when we don't know how that's going to be. But secondly, it's also a chance for us to say, man, and Jesus, you're worthy of our worship. You invest in what you care about. And this is a way that we get to do that. Thirdly, we're going to get to respond through communion. And as you take the cracker representing Jesus' broken body and dip it into the wine or grape juice representing his shed blood, we're reminded of the extravagant love of our Father who would not let anything hold him back for bringing us into his family. That's a God you can trust. We're also going to get a chance to respond through prayer. And today, maybe you're wrestling with something deep, something difficult. Myself, anyone else who you want to come by and pray with, we might not have all the answers for you. But what we do have is a relationship with a God that we know you can trust. And we can sit with you and go before him, recognize, man, he can handle your questions. He's not afraid of your doubts. And he invites you to bring them to him. Let me close in prayer. Father, as we come together as a family, there are different people today who are experiencing difficulty that is unexpected. They're experiencing pain and sorrow 
that doesn't really make sense in how a good God could let it happen. And yet we have this beautiful reminder that in the midst of that, we have this picture of to what extent you would go to on our behalf. So I pray that in these dark moments that rather than running from you or stumbling over you, that we would run to you. That we go to you and lay those things at your feet, knowing that you are more than capable of bearing them for us. Amen.